0: Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 19th of February, 2023, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurtz speaking in the series, Outsiders Come to God. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba. Well, quite a few of us have been there. That moment where we take that special person home for the very first time to meet the parents. That is the title of a well-known film, isn't it? But the scene where someone takes their boyfriend or girlfriend home for the very first time, it actually occurs in a lot of films and even a number of adverts. This advert has appeared recently using that as basically its background. And the reason why this occurs so much, this famous scene where people take that special person back to meet their parents, is because it's got so much potential for tension and comedy. And funny things can very definitely happen. Now, in my case, my mum and dad had known Katie's parents for some 30 years, because our dads were both vicars and they moved in similar circles. But my parents hadn't met Katie before, and uh, so I was rather taken aback when my mum's very first words to her were, "'Gosh, don't you look like your mother?' Now, I've got an aunt who married a vicar. You either become a vicar or you marry one in my family. And because the first time she met his parents, she didn't understand a word they were talking about, she bought the Times every day for a week before she next met them so she could say something intelligent in conversation to them. Relationships come in all shapes and sizes, don't they? And sometimes people end up making a fantastic marriage after a pretty disastrous start in terms of meeting the in-laws or the future in-laws. But it's still pretty common to hear people saying that expression. They're the sort of person you can take home to meet your mum. But for the people of Israel, that was definitely not the case with the women that we're thinking about this morning. Apart from Mary, the mother of Jesus, there are four female names in that family tree or genealogy that I read to us earlier. And uh, here they are, here are the women who are in it. It's mainly a list of men's names, but there are five women, Mary, plus these four who are there. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And the very point of their inclusion within this family tree is that none of them were women that a respectable Jewish boy would want to take home to meet mum and dad. Now, I've spoken about this passage before, And I've emphasized its role right at the start, not only of Matthew's gospel, but the whole of the New Testament. These are the very first words in the New Testament in showing how Jesus was descended from two pretty crucial characters. Jesus was descended from Abraham, the one to whom God made that promise that he'd one day be a great nation and through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. So it's tracing Jesus' lineage back to Abraham, but also to another very important character, King David, the king to whom God promised that he would always have a descendant on the throne of Israel and whose son would rule the world forever. And the crucial point being made by this genealogy, the very reason it's there right at the start of Matthew's Gospel, and as I say, the whole of the New Testament, is that it's saying that Jesus Christ came to be the fulfillment of this family that was bearing. God's covenant promises. And it's actually not just shown by the names, it's shown by the numbers as well. Now, you might well have zoned out as I was reading that passage to you with that endless list of names. I don't blame you if you did. But if you stayed awake, you'll have seen this occur at the end of all of those names. This is what it said. There were thus 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. What's that all about? Well, within the world of ancient Israel, and several other cultures as well, numbers had a symbolism that we don't tend to give them today. And within this, seven was the number of completeness. And that meant that 49, seven times seven, was the number of total completeness or fulfilment. And what this family tree is therefore saying is that the coming of Jesus was the start of the final chapter in God's purposes. Six lots of seven had already passed, and Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham and the son of David, represented and represents the beginning of the final set of seven, the start of the final act in God's purposes for the world. But as I say, In the middle of all of those names, the names of men through whom Jesus' line was traced, we get these four particular women. So what do we know about them? Well, the first of these women is Tamar. The family tree first covers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then it gets to Judah, whom we're told had two sons, Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, to find out about Tamar, we have to go back to the Old Testament, to Genesis 38. And there we find the stories of Joseph, the famous stories of Joseph and his technical Dreamcoat, which you're probably aware of. But there's a short story in Genesis 38 that interrupts the story of Joseph by telling us about his elder brother, Judah. Judah had a son called Ur, er, who married a woman called Tamar, but then she died before having children, meaning that as was the custom and indeed the law, his brother Onan then married Tamar to continue the family line. Onan didn't want to do that, and he promptly dies as well, meaning that Judah is reluctant to allow Tamar to marry his third son, Shelah, which is, despite sounding like a girl's name, a bloke's name. And so to ensure that the family line continued, Tamar, turn away now if you are... don't want something that's rather distasteful. Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and she gets herself pregnant by Judah himself. Now Judah didn't know that the woman that he'd had sex with was his daughter-in-law and when he found out that Tamar was pregnant, he ordered that she should be burnt to death. But having discovered his own role in her pregnancy, Judah declares these words. He says, "'She is more righteous than I,' since I wouldn't give her my son, Sheila. Twins called Perez and Zerah are the result, and the covenant line that began with Abraham was able to continue through Perez on its way to Jesus. So that's the first of our women. It's not the most edifying stuff, is it? Let's see if it gets better with the second woman in this family tree. We're on to the second one now, Rahab. Rahab is mentioned a couple of verses after Tamar, as the mother of Boaz, whose father was Salmon. This time it's the book of Joshua where we find out about Rahab, and there we discover that she was a Canaanite prostitute in the city of Jericho. Rahab gave shelter to the Israelite spies who came into the city before its capture, and the deal that she made with them was that if she helped them, then she and her family would be spared when the city of Jericho was destroyed. Now, we don't hear anything in the book of Joshua about her marriage, and perhaps there wasn't one, as Rahab produces a son called Boaz by Salmon, who's the great-great-great-grandson of Perez. And it allows, once again, the covenant line of Abraham to continue on its vital path to Jesus. It's all been pretty unsavory so far, hasn't it? Hazel's looking rather disapproving down there. But perhaps it's about to get better with the third of our women, Ruth. Ruth, the mother of Obed by his father, Boaz. Now, many of us here will know the story of Ruth already and will know that a large amount of it is about the faithfulness that she showed to her mother-in-law, Naomi. I think we've got a picture of it there refusing to abandon her mother-in-law after Naomi's husband and her sons, which included Ruth's husband, had died. Tamar and Rahab may not have been the sort of women you want to take home to your parents, but surely Ruth is very different. Well, perhaps. Like Rahab, however, Ruth wasn't an Israelite. In her case, she was from Moab. That was a tribe that were terrible oppressors of Israel. And what's more, there are one or two bits of the story of Ruth that do look a little bit like that earlier one of Tamar. You see, at Naomi's Naomi's instruction, Ruth makes her way to where Boaz is sleeping out in the fields, and we're told she uncovers his feet. That may be a euphemism, we're not totally sure. But Naomi also says he will tell you what to do. This is the middle of the night and so on. Now, nothing dodgy actually occurs But it's interesting that when Boaz announces that he'll marry Ruth, the elders in Bethlehem recall a story, and look which one it is. They recall the story of the son Perez that Tamar bore to Judah, that earlier, very dodgy story that we saw. Ruth and Boaz are married, and the result of their union is a son called Obed, and again, that enables the covenant family of Abraham to continue towards Jesus, and Obed became the grandfather of King David. And that leads us to our final woman in the family tree, the mother of King Solomon by King David, who's not even given a name, but whom we're told had been Uriah's wife. Now that's significant for two reasons. First, because like Rahab and Ruth, Uriah wasn't an Israelite. He was a Gentile. In his case, he was a Hittite. But secondly, because this story represents really the most terrible part of the story of King David from 2 Samuel. Read that story from 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we see the pretty shocking story of King David seeing a woman called Bathsheba bathing from his palace roof, sending for her, getting her pregnant. And when he couldn't cover it up, having her husband, Uriah, murdered. David had other wives and other sons, but it was this son, Solomon, that he had by the wife of Uriah the Hittite, through whom the family line that began with Abraham continued on its way towards Jesus. So, what do we make of this? Just four women, other than Mary, mentioned in this family tree or genealogy, to give it its proper name, and all four of them representing parts of the covenant story of Israel that were really less than respectable. That doesn't mean, I hasten to add, that these women deserve our criticism or condemnation. It's the men in the stories, who in the words of Judah to Tamar, are much less righteous than the women. The women are being exploited, they're limited in their agency, And yet, they're women who take in several cases decisions that turn out to be a crucial part of the ongoing plan of God. The ongoing plan of God to fulfill his covenant promises made to Abraham and David amongst others through the coming of Jesus. So what do we learn from these four women being placed in the middle of this pretty crucial family tree that's there to kick off the whole of the New Testament? It's clearly a crucial passage What do we make of these four women being selected to be highlighted within it? It's there to say some really important things to us, the first of which I believe is this. God works his purpose through the most unlikely people. This series is called Outsiders Come to God. But in many ways it could just as easily be called Outsiders Are Used by God. And I mean that term positively. And that's certainly what we see here, don't we? All four were women, which in the culture of the time made them all outsiders to some degree, given what I talked about earlier, the limited agency and rights possessed by women. The most terrible example of this is the double standard of Judah, when he's prepared to have Tamar burnt to death for something that he himself has done to her. At least three of the four are Gentiles, Bathsheba possibly through marriage rather than by race. And that made them, at best, second-class citizens within Israel, as seen by David's callous treatment of both Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. At least three of them have the stain of sexual dishonor, even as I say that's the result of their exploitation by men. None of them, to repeat, were the sort of people that a respectable Jewish boy would take home to meet his parents. And yet God, the ultimate parent, the ultimate father, the father of Abraham and thus of all that line, uses them to advance his purposes. And that's not despite what happened to them. It's through those things that happened to them. And that's what leads us on to a second important point and one with great relevance to all of us. God can and does use the most appalling circumstances to advance his purposes. The Tamar story is horrible, isn't it? The Bathsheba story is horrible. The back story of Rahab is horrible. And for largely different reasons, the background to the Ruth story is pretty tragic and heartbreaking as well. But in each case, God works through the most awful circumstances to advance his purpose of bringing his rescue into the world through Jesus. God doesn't cause these terrible, horrible things to happen. They're the result of a messed up world. But God does work through them. We can even say that God redeems them because God can and does always find a way for his powerful love to work through the most awful and terrible circumstances. And that's the huge benefit of all this unsavoury stuff contained in the Bible. We sometimes wince at it. We sometimes wish it wasn't there. We quite often sanitise it. More than once I've heard about the scramblers, our 3's to 5's groups, uh, who are up there at the moment in the scramblers' room. More than once I've heard about them being taught that Rahab ran a bed and breakfast, which is how she met the spies. That's a slightly sanitised version, isn't it, of the story. Probably appropriate for our threes to fives, I hasten to add. I'm not sure where that happens now. Nathan's in charge of the kids' work. (laughs) But actually, it's vital that that unsavory stuff is there. Why is it vital that it's there? Because otherwise, we could think God just works through the squeaky, clean, and nice and respectable. And that is emphatically not the case. God works through the most unlikely people. That's the message of the Bible, very often. And what's more, God works through the most awful circumstances, things that in no way reflect his will. He doesn't bring those things about, but he can work through them because He's God and his amazing love can work through anything. God, to repeat, can work through the most awful circumstances to advance his purpose of bringing his love further into the world. The application of this to us is fairly obvious, but it still needs spelling out. There's nothing that's happened in your life. Terrible things that you've perhaps done. Terrible things, perhaps, that have happened to you. Terrible things, perhaps, that have been done to you. Or perhaps a horrible mixture of all of those things. There's none of those things that God's love cannot work through at all. When I think about the reasons why I'm a Christian, there are lots of them. But the overwhelming one, the one that really comes top of the tree, is my experience of seeing God time and again working his redeeming, rescuing love through situations that don't appear to have a single positive. God working this miracle of revealing his love through the most awful, horrible circumstances There are lots of examples I could cite. Perhaps the most powerful I know is of someone who faced the really terrible loss at a very young age of both of her parents in tragic circumstances, but who then was determined to carve out a life that would be used by God, and she's done so in the most amazing way. Not really despite those experiences, but really through them. She's been prepared, this person that I'm thinking of, to use her life in a way that seeks to learn from that experience and somehow use it with the deeper insights that it's given her about the difference that love makes. And it's been fantastic to witness. I can think of another uh, woman uh, in a church that I previously belonged to who came for many years with her husband and her children, very much stalwarts of the church, a very admired family in many ways, until suddenly, around the age that they would have been retiring, he met someone else and he promptly left her. And it was an enormous shock. It was the last thing that anyone in that church expected to happen. We really didn't see it coming at all. It was obviously enormously painful for this woman in particular and also for her children. But in the years that followed she decided that God was calling her to go out to Africa to work as a missionary at the very age when most people will be thinking of retiring and settle down she did the opposite she went out to Africa to work as a missionary and I remember her standing up at the front of church and I think she'd been embarrassed and and obviously in a lot of pain about what had happened but was somehow given the words to explain everything to the church and I remember her saying that this opportunity Had really only emerged because she was free to take it. God didn't cause the horrible things in those two examples I've given to happen, but He was able to use them to advance His purposes. And there'll be things for all of us in this church this morning that can be the same things that haven't worked out as we hoped they would, things that perhaps have been completely disastrous and painful things that quite often just seem unmitigatedly awful, and very often are. But God, nevertheless, can work through them. That's what God can do and does do. God can bring about this miracle of revealing his love through the most terrible circumstances, and it means there is nothing that we've done, nothing that has been done to us No circumstance that we've gone through that God cannot work through and reveal his love through. That, I believe, is perhaps the most important point of the appearance of these four women in the family tree. And what it shows us overall is this point. God is full of surprises. I haven't haven't said much yet about Mary. focus hasn't really been on her this morning. We think about her mostly at Christmas time, don't we? And the considerable surprise she felt at being chosen by God to be the mother of Jesus. It's significant that when she spoke or sung those words that we know as the Magnificat, Mary interpreted what had happened to her in the light of God's dealings in the past with the people of Israel, and particularly the reversal at the heart of God's outworking of his purposes. And a big part of that reversal Is God surprising us by both the people he chooses to work through and the circumstances that he's able to use as he does that? A great deal about being a Christian is about having the faith to be open to the God of surprises. The God that we can't pigeonhole as someone who just works through the uncomplicated and the nice and the respectable. God actually is the very opposite. God works through people who are broken. God works through experiences that are awful and tragic and terrible. And that's because we worship a God who meets us in the reality of our lives. Not a God who waits for us to get our act together and make sure we're pretty much perfect and and then he'll engage with us. A God who meets us in the brokenness of our lives. A God who wants to meet us in the pain of perhaps the worst things that have happened to us. Perhaps the worst things we've done, the legacy of which we still live with. Perhaps terrible things that have been done to us. God finds a way. That is the message of the Bible. God finds a way to work his redeeming, rescuing love through every single circumstance that we have gone through. There's nothing at all that God can't reveal love through. It doesn't take away the pain of those things. Very often we mourn certain events or certain people for the rest of our lives. But God is a God of redemption. God is a God of rescuing, redeeming love. And that, I believe, is the message of these four women appearing in this genealogy. He works through the mess because he's like the most perfect an understanding parent and that's why every single one of us is welcome home to become part of his family. Let's pray. Father God, in this church this morning are people coming from all sorts of experiences, some of them in the distant past, some of them very recent, things that have caused tremendous pain. And hurt very often. Lord God we pray that you would reveal your love that against the darkness of difficult sometimes terrible events your love would shine more brightly. Would you encourage us? Would you help us? Would you lead us to have faith in you? So that we can experience more of your love and your light overcoming the darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tim.